in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. These brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, Brian Fry, Chad Robinson, Destin Melbarnes, Lizzie Haynes, and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Welcome all you lords, ladies, and knights to the Retro Movie Roundtable. Welcome to the show where we watch movies and then talk about them. I am your host, Russell Guest, and joining me today is my good friend and co-host, Mr. Chad Robinson. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing well. Ready for some Bond action today. All right. And I am excited. We have brought in a very special, special guest for our special secret agent episode here from the All 80s Movies Podcast, Mr. Bill Bant. Hello, gentlemen. Thank you so much for having me on this episode. Very excited to talk about some Bond. That's right. Bill is a Bond enthusiast. I found this out when I came on the All 80s Movies Podcast myself when we did a little shop of horrors. The classic James Bond film. Well, I just found out afterwards that he was a Bond <laughs> fan. So I, I was like, wow, we gotta we gotta use this. So let's talk about Bill. Tell us about the All 80s Movies Podcast. People hear the ads on our show pretty frequently. That's our typical ad break. But for those who want to know more about it, just give us a little heads up. Yeah, so uh, the All 80s Movies podcast, as I like to say, is the podcast that talks about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between from one of the greatest movie decades of all time, the 1980s. It's a decade me and my co-host, Jason Masick, grew up in. Uh, we met together in film school in the early 90s and uh, have worked on some film projects since. And when COVID hit and everything kind of shut down, we just needed some kind of artistic outlet and we decided to do a podcast and we were like why don't we talk about the movies that influenced us to be filmmakers and it was always 80s i mean in college when it wasn't a night going out and hanging out we were in piled in someone else's dorm room watching old 80s movies and introducing movies that we love to lots of friends and now we're just doing it on a bigger platform it's just been a blast and just great feedback from fans and just like you know, you know, people who find your podcast from all over the world and just enjoy and refreshing uh, memories. So yeah, it's it's been a great run so far. Absolutely, and I I gotta say I listen to your all show. I'm a fan of it. So I want to say if you will enjoy our show, I think you'll enjoy their show too. Particularly if you like the '80s. So listen to both shows. And Bill, we're wondering who the next Bond will be right now. But what actor do you think would have made a great Bond? But their time has come and gone. This was, yeah, this was a tough one because I think one of the things about Bond is you look at the Bonds in the past and you've had a mix of unknowns and well-knowns. And to me, the unknowns seem to work a little bit better. So trying to pick someone from the past is that is known, I don't know if it would work, but the person that I came up with was Clive Owen. I was a huge Clive Owen fan when he first uh, entered the scene. And I really thought he would have been a pretty good Bond. Mm -hmm. um, he had the look. I, I think he could pull off the stunt work, the action, um, English background, which is always great. So uh, yeah, he, he was he was the one that went to the top of the list. For nice. Me. That's a very good choice. Chad, how about you? 
I don't think it's too late for Henry Cavill. I want Henry Cavill in the Bond role very, very badly over, you know, the Tom Hiddlestons of the world. I, I look at some of the previous choices or what ifs and Burt Reynolds is intriguing. I understand the whole American Bond, but I'm still intrigued. I, I kind of want to see Burt Reynolds in that role. Okay, okay. Technically, the book's not totally close on my pick here, but I think it is. Michael Fassbender, I think, would have been a just terrific James Bond. He's just a good actor. Not an English background, but that's okay. I also remember back in the day when they were debating, I remember Ewan McGregor and Hugh Jackman were some names that were getting bantered about at the time. And I was sitting there going like, oh, these would, these would be really good too. So I always love these hypothetical what-if scenarios. So. I feel like Hugh Jackman looks... He looks too nice, even though he's Wolverine. Like that one, I just I was going to say, he's Wolverine. He's not that yeah. nice. <laughs> yeah, there's one that came really close that I would have been interested with. Sam Neill from the Jurassic yes. Park series was mm-hmm. very close to getting it. And I, and I was like, that would have been interesting because we as American audience would have no idea who he was because we really didn't see him until um, what uh, he did that movie with Nicole Kidman on the boat. I can't remember what that was. was uh, Billy Zane. Who I don't remember. I know he's in one of those like uh, you know Omen sequels. Yes, he was. He was in the third one. Yeah, yeah. But it was the same thing with when Daniel Craig first got picked, and everyone was complaining about that. But I just happened to see Layer Cake in the theater, and just watching his performance in that, I'm like, no, I think they got it right. Uh, And that's why I told people, I'm like, go see Layer Cake, and you'll see that they made the right choice for the latest Bond. He won over most people for sure. So yeah. Now, what is the last movie you saw, Bill? So the last movie I saw, I always like to watch like weird little quirky small movies. And um, I saw this movie called Pinball, The Man Who Saved the Game. And it's a story of uh, Roger Sharp. And he helped overturn the New York uh, City ban on pinball machines that existed for over 35 years because they were considered a gambling device. And he was able to prove that it was not a gambling device. It was actually a device of skill. Nice. Yeah. I haven't heard of this one. Yeah, there's really nobody in it. I think the only name maybe you would recognize is Crystal Reed, if you were a fan of Teen mm-hmm. Wolf, the TV series. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was in it. She played the love interest in it. The main character was Michael Fast. Hopefully I'm saying that right. I think he was in the uh, West Side Story. I, haven't, I have not seen the new one, so... Mm-hmm. Um, I think he had a role in that as Riff, I think I believe it was. Chad, what about you? What was your last movie you saw? I went to Bill's Decade. I watched the 80s movie, Vincent Price movie of Dead Heat, which is a zombie buddy cop horror comedy, I, I think is how I would wrap this up. It is quintessential just 80s cheese B-movie. But you know what? It's one of the better done ones out there. It's it's a lot of fun. You would hate it, Russell. I didn't know Vincent Price was around into the 80s. Yes. Okay. My last movie that I saw is Three Ninjas from 1992. Okay. So, yeah. Oh, okay. Still have never seen that one. You know what? It's made for kids, but <laughs> you know what? It's still fun. I mean, it's not made to be taken seriously, so I think people will still have fun with that, so... Yeah, I think I aged out of that right when that came out. So I've never gotten back to it yet. Yeah. If you, this is a type of movie that's not around anymore. Like, just like the, it's a comedy kind of for kids, live action. Everything for kids is like either Pixar or like animated now at this point. So I was thinking about it. I, I texted Chad back the other day. And so I, I was like, these are gone. Like, nobody makes these yep. anymore. 
and like spy kids might be agent cody banks or something like that like that's the last of them like so like they kind of make it to maybe 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 some of them go into the o's but it's just one of those things that caught me as interesting it's a it's a dead typology so i've been going back and revisiting a few of them here and there seeing which ones hold up and which ones don't in general they're just 2.5 star movies pleasant inoffensive you know and gateways for movies for younger audiences so chad what are we going to do today we are going to do 1989's license to kill all right spelled the british way i might add fair enough yeah starring timothy dalton carrie lowell Robert Davi, good villain here. Talisa Soto and Anthony Zarbi. Zarb? Zarbi. I think I go Zarbi myself. I go Zarbi. Yeah. Don't look to me. I screw up these things. Gene Reno being my most infamous one. That was pretty funny. <laughs> Jean Reno became Gene Reno. You know what? That's his American pseudonym. <laughs> I'm notorious for butchering actors' names on our pod, too. All right. So, License to Kill is a profitable movie. It uh, costs $32 million. It grosses $34.6 million domestically. So it's not a huge landslide, but that's the domestic numbers. Globally, it still does very well as all Bond movies do. Uh, that is a lower budget than many of the Bond movies, I might add, especially for given at what point in history we are at this time. It's 36 on the box office for the year. It comes in just behind Fletch Lives and just ahead of Lean On Me. The number one movie from 1989 was Batman, which I love that movie. And IMDb gives License to Kill kind of a low score, 6.6. The critics of Rotten Tomatoes are kinder at 79%, but the audience score right back down to that IMDb score, giving it a 61%. Awards, it gets an Edgar Allan Poe Award nomination for Best Motion Picture from 1990. We don't mention that one very often. And the MPSE Golden Reel nominee for Outstanding Sound Mixing. So, you know, not necessarily the illustrious awards, but awards nonetheless. Bill, had you seen License to Kill before? What was your background with it? Kind of funny. As much as I've been a Bond fan, I did not start seeing James Bond movies in the theater until Pierce Brosnan took over as GoldenEye. So this would be the last probably James Bond movie I would see on video. And this is actually one of my most watched of the Bond movies. Not saying it's my favorite, not saying it's the best, but for some reason, I love putting this movie on maybe just in the background or, or stuff like that and stuff we'll get into too. But I would say it's definitely one of my top three most watched Bond movies. Yeah. And I don't want to date you too much if you don't want to be, but what age are you for this one? Because I feel like there's certain ages in your life where once Bond movie comes to you, like it's, you know, it binds, it binds to you as a Bond fan. Like it becomes part of your personality. So it's probably 17. So yeah, I was going to my freshman, no, my senior year of high school when this came out. Okay. Okay. And uh, do you feel like it holds up well? I would say most of it does, um, especially because the plot is about a drug kingpin that Bond's seeking revenge against. And yes, drugs are still uh, rampant and around, uh, especially out of the Florida area. So uh, yeah, I would say most of it still holds up. You're saying we lost the war on drugs? Uh, yeah, I believe so. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. So drugs are winning. All yes. right. Big time. Yeah. <laughs> okay, Chad, how about you? Had you seen License to Kill before? Of course, yeah. We did our Bond count countdown, so check that out. I don't recall where I ranked this movie because it's just done completely in heat of the moment, passions, whatever, whatever I've seen most recently. 
but I do remember being softer on Timothy Dalton than a lot of people our age. I feel like there was just backlash. I love Roger Moore. He's my favorite. So this was a huge tone shift for me mm-hmm. going I, I did watch them relatively in order once I got into Bond. So we go from goofiness of Roger Moore to the seriousness of Timothy Dalton. But you know what? I I feel like Daniel Craig has made me appreciate t- uh, Timothy Dalton even more. I feel like Dalton set up everything that Craig does now. And I, he still keeps a little bit of the silliness. It's not silly, but lightheartedness of Roger Moore. So it's a good mix for me. I like it. Yeah. Yeah. Do you feel like here in the 2020s, it's still aging well for you? Yeah, there were some unique things due to the AIDS epidemic where Bond is having less sex than ever before. And I actually kind of think that helps these types of movies because we have a lot of really uncomfortable scenarios with Roger Moore, particularly with Sean Connery where it's just like, okay, uh, now we've got to deal with this and talk about this. There's less of that in this movie. He's still getting beautiful women, and that's still a part of the Bond franchise, and Bill nailed it with, he's a more down-to-earth villain. He's not trying microchips to take over the world like we did with A a View to a Kill. Okay, okay. Yeah, and for me, I, I enjoy this one a fair bit, and whereas sometimes... Craig might be a little bit too serious for me, and this is ahead of its time. I like the balance here a little better. I think it has a foot in the older Bond, and then it is still going to be, it's a little more grounded as in general. So I do like Timothy Dalton's Bond. I feel like he is, uh, we kind of covered this when we covered Honor Majesty's Secret Service. When you don't get a full tenure as Bond, you don't get a chance to set up the culture of Bond, like in the same way that Roger had an era. You know, Sean had... And he had the benefit of establishing the character, uh, perhaps too short or shorter. Pierce had a, a good run, too. Dalton doesn't get it. There was going to be a third movie called Property of a Lady, and it just didn't happen. And that's unfortunate because, you know, just the legal battles of, you know, the, the rights of all this stuff got tied up and it just didn't get made through no fault of anybody on this movie's fault. But I think what we I'd like to imagine if he had a better run, because I think he was distinguishing himself as different than the two main from Roger and Sean Connery. And that was a really cool thing to do. So I think I wish we could have had a little more. Certainly, I didn't want that long. It's a long run before Brosnan comes in and gets to take over. So I wish we could have gotten another two movies just out of Dalton. I don't want to take Goldeneye away or anything, touch anything there, but I just wish we could have had more. So I this movie is probably... I think this is my favorite of the two Dalton movies. I think Robert Davi has a lot to do with that because we had a great Bond villain. I think Ebert at one point said the success of a Bond movie largely has to do with whatever villain he's going up against. But anyway, Robert Davi is a great villain. And I think this movie is a, one of those movies that I, I could see the rewatch value in this one, Bill. This is one that has a lot of action. I think it's got good side characters, great henchmen. It's got a lot of those things that you just check off for what makes a good Bond movie. And I think this is a fun one to return to. I don't think it has the style that some of my favorite Bond movies do, but that's that's to some degree just the era for me. So, Yeah, I think I would agree with that too. There's something stylized about this one that is very different from the rest. And I agree with it too. It doesn't quite match the other Bond movies. And I think that kind of gives a, a little negative to it. 
because it almost <laughs> feels like you're typical. Any anybody could have done this movie. Yes. Yeah. yeah, I think you're getting into that. But let's get on the other side of the spoiler wall here. We're going to come back. We're going to be having spoilers on License to Kill. So if you haven't seen it, you're going to want to watch it and come back. We'll be back after these messages. Welcome to the All 80s Movies Podcast. I'm Bill. And I'm Jason. And this is the podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between from one of the freshest decades for movies, the 1980s. So whether you're a brain, a jock, a valley girl, or a Jedi, we've got some 80s classics for you. Do these movies stand the test of time? Are we discovering something new? Is there an 80s movie we're finally watching for the first time? Join us each week as we dive into the cinematic nostalgia that inspired and influenced a generation. From the hits to the cult classics, we'll discuss our earliest memories, favorite scenes, fun facts, and our not-so-favorite movie moments, too. It's the All 80s Movies Podcast, now available on all major streaming platforms. Please subscribe and happy listening. All right, we're back. And Chad, for those who haven't seen License to Kill since 1989, do you want to refresh people's memories? James Bond and his CIA buddy Felix Leiter shut down a drug lord by the name of Franz Sanchez on his way to Felix's wedding. Sanchez bribes a DEA agent and escapes ambushing Leiter and his new bride. Is the bride killed and Felix is maimed by one of Sanchez's sharks? Bond is forbidden to pursue Sanchez, so he turns on his license to kill and becomes a rogue agent. Bond tracks Sanchez down and embeds himself inside his operations, befriending an American operative named Pam Bouvier. Eventually, Bond is recognized by a lower-level thug and has to escape from Sanchez. A big showdown with lots of full tankers full of cocaine ensues, and Bond overcomes Sanchez by lighting him on fire with the cigarette lighter he received from Felix. Later, Bond receives a call from Lighter telling him that M was pleased with his work after all and offers Bond his job back. All right, all right. So this is the the last 007 movie released during the Cold War, and by this point, you know, the Soviet communism bad guy is less of a threat. And so this is kind of a new direction, perhaps for all of movie culture, for what where are bad guys coming from? And so this Central American dictator drug lord kind of villain is in the news at the time and Bond responds to its times, certainly. Bill, how do you think, I think we touched on this before, the style starting to change a fair bit. What is what are we seeing here as we're into the late 80s, Dalton's second movie, so this is not his introduction. We know he's a grittier Bond that follows the novels more closely, certainly more than Moore did before. But where where were we going with this movie at this point? Yeah, I think it was interesting because basically they have run out of the source material. I mean, they've basically done all of Ian Fleming's books up to this point. And yes, there are elements of this movie from Live and Let Die and one of uh, Ian Fleming's short stories. I think it's called the Hildebrand uh, Rarity, which, yeah, very, very weird. Short story? Yeah, short story. So now they're just A little bit from your eyes only, too. Yes. So they're taking now world events, what's going on in the world right now. And the big thing then was the war on drugs. And we've already joked about it earlier. It's a war that we're still losing. We're still trying to fight it. And so they're trying to make something topical, something part of the time. And yes, we're moving away from the communists. We're not sure who our new villains are. So let's tackle the drug war. 
But I think what makes it interesting about this villain, and, and Chad kind of mentioned it too, here's a villain that's actually happy where he's at right now. He's got everything he wants. He's not trying to conquer the world. Unfortunately, he crossed the wrong person at the wrong time, and now Bond is out for revenge. But when we're seeing this villain, Sanchez, and his whole empire, like he's expanding it at the moment, but he's not per se trying to dominate. He's not trying to take out other drug lords. He's just expanding his current empire. So it kind of makes it interesting that we have a villain that doesn't have this, let me explain to Bond for 10 minutes how I'm going to dominate the world. It's, I'm a drug dealer, and (laughs) this is how I do it, and this is how I send out drugs. This is how I get my money. I do run everything through a casino. So you, you see the operation. You're like, wow, this is pretty good. And he actually kind of runs a small country of uh, Isthmus where he's uh, behind the scenes of the, di- the dictator that, that works there. So it's an interesting new way of how they're presenting Bond and the world that we have not seen in any of the other films. I was a little too young for this news story, but I guess the this is a reference to Manuel Noriega, who was, I guess, a corrupt leader of Panama. And oh, so the yes. CIA was working hard to get it, get him out at the time. So when I say it's responding to its time, it very much is responding specifically to current events. And obviously, there's the Colombian drug lord of Pablo Escobar, who was terrorizing his country with bomb attacks and selectively killing presidential candidates. And, you know, he's bribing and running the president. We see him handing him money. You're, you're only president as long as you're alive kind of thing. So, you know, threatening even even the government officials. You see Robert Davi's character doing that here. So I, I like him, though. I think there's a creepiness to Robert Davi that I, I think we got a good villain here, don't we, Chad? Yeah, from the first time we see him, he, well, one of the first times he has the guy's heart cut out for sleeping with his woman. And he's, he just has a sick sense of humor of, okay, he'll give him his heart or uh, he disagreed with something that ate him. All, all of these cruel tortures that you do hear nothing to this extent, but other horrific things from out of drug cartels to the South. He's just cold and calculating. And I I genuinely think if it weren't for Bond, he probably would have figured out how to do the depressurization and do the head exploding whatever stunt that that Bond did uh, to, oh man, what was his name? Crest. Yeah. Crest. So it, it wouldn't surprise me if he used that little chamber as well and had a cleaning crew. That must have been a hard cleanup. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah, under um, the money. Bill, this is a we we had seen Dalton before. This movie's notably more violent than Dalton's first movie. Where do you think that's coming from? I think it's just another yeah, because it is the first PG thirteen movie of the Bond series, and I think it's just a sign of the times that Timothy Dalton wanted to be more authentic. He really wanted to follow the Ian Fleming character, and the Ian Fleming Bond is cold and calculated. And um, it's shoot first, ask questions later. And I think, too, is I think also they were a little worried about the the reception that the living daylights got. So it's, you know, let's amp up the action. And if that includes doing a little bit more violence, let's see where it goes. So I read at first this would have been. Yeah, I read at first this was going to head for an R rating and they had to dial it back down to get it back down to PG-13, which. I'm glad I don't think Bond wants to live in the R rating zone. No, I don't think so either. 
Yeah. I guess Die Hard's around. Die Hard's the year before this, right? 87. So okay. two years before. But yeah. Okay. But now, now, now you have the everyman. Yeah. Yeah. And you got Lethal Weapon. I, movies are trending up and becoming more violent is my point, though, in general. So mm-hmm. it's just late 80s, early 90s. Movies are about as we, we are at a, I would say we're at the peak of violence. I think movies are less violent now than they were then. Is that fair? You're watching the wrong genres. Maybe so, but I maybe, yeah, <laughs> but I, I feel like, I feel like we're at a high level of violence for certainly this series. Oh yeah. Yeah. So, yeah I would think so. Just getting your leg eaten off by a shark and showing it was pretty rough. So I don't know. Interesting though. Uh, uh, he wanted to, he was posing as a guy to buy a great white shark. You can't, you can't actually buy a great white shark. So you know. yeah, that was the giveaway right there. I'm like, uh, yeah, you can't hold a great white shark in captivity. So they should have saw through that one right away, especially for any kind of uh, fish or marine life aficionado. He found the drugs fast, by the way. Oh yeah. <laughs> First drawer. Bing. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's like here maggots onto the maggots, right where I thought they'd be. Everybody yep. gets drugs under maggots. Yeah. So it's one of those things that uh, it's kind of two halves too. He infiltrates their drug operation. And I think you were right, Bill, you get to see their operation kind of go through. That's one of the neat things too. I mean, it, this is kind of one of those crime movies in addition to that espionage that you have here. You were right in saying this could have been a not Bond movie pretty easily. This could have just been an American action flick. Um, Correct. Like, very easily with some other, I don't know, plug Bruce Willis in, you know? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. You could have Willis, Stallone, even Seagal. It could have been one of his first movies. Yeah, it, it kind of follows that kind of plot. I think it was just trying to open it up to a wider audience that they maybe felt was shrinking after uh, the Living Daylights returns. Yeah. And we're not real heavy on gadgets either, are we, Chad? You know what? This is, I looked at it, we do get more Q in this movie than any other movie up to this point. Mm-hmm. And it, Desmond Luan said uh, this was the first time he felt like he really got paid for the series. So that's a huge bonus for me, but definitely one of the things that kind of hurt the series and maybe what you all were speaking to earlier about style. I'm looking at the cars. Bond drives a Lincoln. Like, he doesn't have a stylized Jaguar, BMW, whatever. Some of these cars that we tend to associate with him, he doesn't have any specialties there. Like, Q has, he's got explosive toothpaste, and there's some fun scenes, and the little uh, gadget gun that works as a fingerprint scanner. Q's got the radio uh, broom, which is awesome, by the way. I I do like the radio broom, yes. I, I like his outfit. But yeah, we don't get... The Golden Eye wristwatch. That's the very next movie that we get out of this franchise, and it has some of the coolest gadgets around. So, yeah, explosive toothpaste. I'll take it. Yeah, I, I do like the explosive toothpaste. That that is fair. So, yeah, Chad, I'm I'm with you. Give me some cue. I always think about you. Think of the iconic line from the Bond franchise, which is Bond, James Bond, and then the martini shaken, not stirred. For me, third is coming from Q is pay attention 007. I always look forward to that. Every time Q comes on, they go or bond goes down to the Q branch. I just love that line. And it's, I think it's an underappreciated quote. Yeah. And 
this was his favorite movie, as Chad mentioned. Not only did he feel like he earned it or whatever, but he got to go on location. He didn't just chill out in London for this, so he actually went he went on location to shoot. And uh, he got more speaking lines and more screen time. So Desmond Llewellyn, who's in many of them, not all of them, but uh, a vast majority of them, he uh, he said this is his favorite movie So that he got to do. So I like Hugh as well, so I can't help but enjoy it as well. Even... Even though he doesn't get as involved as I was hoping he would, like when I retroactively going back and looking at it, a whole lot of Q is good, but I'm sitting there going like, ah, Bond keeps pushing away his friends. He keeps pushing away Pam. He keeps pushing away Q. He's like, I got to do this on my own. And he's still getting a lot of help from them. And he's still, he, you know, he is still part of a team. Uh, I think Craig's movies do a good job of showing that he's part of a network. In this case, he goes rogue. This is the first time he goes rogue, I believe. Is that right? In the movies, yes. Yeah. This is a trend that we'll have more of later. Brosnan does it. Craig does it. I mean, people or I, I don't know why that is. Certainly, it seems that seems like an American thing to do to just revolt and go off on your own, the lone wolf kind of thing. But uh, here we have Bond going off on his own. He's driven by revenge. Again, that's a very Dalton thing to do. Like that's I don't, Roger Moore is not going on a revenge trip. No. <laughs> so, no. so yeah, of all, if you look at all the Moore movies, the only time he really showed revenge was in Free Your Eyes Only when he kicks that car down the cliff. Because and he wish he is, he hadn't done it too. Yep, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I do think that if uh, you crossed Sean Connery, this the, the revenge trip could be in there. Oh yes, yes absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> but um, I think it was interesting. Uh, Robert Davi said that. Again, you said that there's no source material for this villain, so he just combined Scaramanga, who's one of Chad's favorite villains from Man with the Golden Gun, and Lashif from Casino Royale, which hadn't been released yet, and he kind of made his own character. I don't pick up on that. I love both. Both those are great villains. Somehow Davi has channeled where there was nothing, he created something of his own, and it stands on its own. I don't know if that's a fair thing or not. I, I, I see, I feel like Sanchez is his own dude. And he's a good villain if you were to rank the villains. I mean, Scaramanga's, he's cold, but he's eccentric. Mm-hmm. I, he he has a flair and a style. I guess I could see flair and style for killing. Because he, he does the same thing. He has some very unique torture efforts. But Scaramanga is just, he has a signature. I, that, that's just my favorite. And yeah, Lashif, I, I don't see it all. I, mean, I do think they, they included some of... Blofeld, instead of having a cat, you know, he has a he has an iguana to pet. You've got to give the villain up something to stroke menacingly. <laughs> I mean, he took an actual pack of thugs, went on vacation in South America to with, with a drug lord, and apparently he was approved of his portrayal of a drug lord himself. So that's that's some real method acting, get, digging in there. So yeah, I think the. Two things I like about the Sanchez character was loyalty was really important to him and he rewarded people that were loyal to him. And then there's the scene when he's about to feed lighter to the sharks and he says to him, he's like, this isn't personal. This is just business. And yeah, to me that, that just shows who he is. It's just like, I got to do what it takes in order to keep my kingdom afloat. And if it means we got to feed you to a shark, so be it. Sorry, you just got in my way. You're the wrong person at the wrong time. Now, I know Jason on your show has spoken highly of Carrie Lowell. Are you a Carrie Lowell fan as well? Oh, though? yeah. That's another major factor of probably why I watch this movie repeatedly. Um, yeah, I would. She, 
I guess if you did like the Friends Five people, you would leave your significant other four. Carrie Lowell from this movie would be in my five. Eighties, yeah, eighties elite status here for you. Yes. So okay, okay. So again, this is what I talked about. Like sometimes Bond hits you at the right age, and mm-hmm. these the, the this can factor into it as well. So uh, she's not the glamour girl though. She's not. She's not somebody who just sits there and looks amazing. She's involved. She's an agent herself. And we really do see a progression. We covered Moonraker recently. And, you know, <laughs> in that one, we had we had a smarter Bond companion, Bond girl. If, if this, it's the term. Here, we've only gone up from there. Like, I mean, she's hands-on. There are still moments where we still feel he's kind of talking down to her. Like, she's not as on level with him. So that that continues to evolve as the series goes forward. But it you can see the progressions through the eras. It happens slower than we'd like to see probably in real society. But it, again, it reflects where we are at the time. So progressive, but not yet there enough in some ways. But uh, she's no damsel in distress, that's for sure. Yeah, she's definitely one of the more capable ones. I think of Tracy for uh, Owner Majesty's Secret Service. Like she's that's, great. That's the highest echelon. She is extremely capable and bails out Bond, but I don't think Miss Kennedy slash Pam is really, she's not objectified too much. She's very capable. She bails out Bond twice in this movie. I think it's two times. And even when he's yelling at her, she already has a plan. She's got bulletproof vest, uh, armor on her back, uh, shotgun under the table, everything. She's... I, I like her. I like her as a Bond girl. I think compared to Talissa Soto, who she's very young. I, I think she's 22. The hairstyle did not help. No, oh, I disagree. I like, it, I like her. I, I thought it was interesting. She looks much older. I had to look it up. Like She doesn't look that old in Mortal Kombat. That's where I know her from is uh, Katana mm-hmm. in Mortal Kombat. But I just felt like the acting disparity between the two was uh, a big gulf huh i think you're being hard on lupe's character but that's just me but it's okay chad i'm with you on that one oh (laughs) yeah she's beautiful to look at but yeah i thought she's kind of one of the weak points i i'm i'm known for having a soft spot in my heart you know you know there's there's different ways to be good at things and you can be a really good actor you can be really good looking and somehow if you're if you have weaknesses in one area you can make up for another area so <laughs> there's a law of diminishing returns at a certain point this is no denise richards oh my goodness christmas jones yeah this is not that so lee thompson was considered for the role of pam she had to not do this because she was involved with doing back to the future two and three would you want leah thompson in here no no I don't, I don't even think I could see Leah Thompson as a Bond girl in any of them, to be honest. She seems a little too wholesome for me. Too wholesome. Okay. Not tough enough. Correct. Okay. I'm yeah. intrigued. I, I'm very intrigued. I'd like to see what she could do with it, but yeah, she's tough. I think she just does a great job, and it's interesting that she didn't see herself as this glamour girl. She wasn't she wasn't sure if she could fit this role. I think she did a great job. Yeah, I like the story with though where she learned to try and shoot and it didn't go so well. And she'd flinch and clinch up and close her eyes uh, yeah. a whole lot every time that she would fire the gun. So she entered herself uh, well during the fight scenes, though. And the stuntman gave her the nickname of Pambo, which instead of Rambo, which I thought was 
pretty funny. So again, a sign of increasing involvement from the female character in what they do in the acting, not just in the role that they get. So speaking of young actors in this one, this is Benicio del Toro in here. Yes. And he's oh, good. He's like a little baby in this. Oh my God. It's the beginning of his typecasting. It is. <laughs> that gold tooth and that, that, that menacing smile. I'll tell you, even before I realized it was del Toro, like one of the first things that stuck with me on this one was when, you know, he was taunting bond and he's like, or, um, he was taunting. He's like, we gave her a nice, sorry, uh, Felix lighter. And he taunts him and he goes, we gave her a nice honeymoon. And I'm just like, whoa, the guy that gives me the creeps. Yeah, he's it, it, it's great to go back to these movies and see where people started and just to see Benicio as, as a henchman and a good henchman, too, at it. He doesn't get like a thing like Odd Jobs hat or like no, metal teeth. Like he doesn't get anything nearly that much. So for being a regular guy, he leaves an awfully big impact. You know, he's he has a like, good death, though. He does yes. have a good death. Oh, that that that. So he gets thrown into a cocaine grinder where they're grinding up bricks of cocaine into a powder and like the powder and the clouds all turn red as he's drops down into it. And it's just uh, it's it's another one of those brutal scenes, but it's uh, it's very satisfying. He's been a menacing villain throughout this. So, yeah, I think the best Bond henchman get like like Teehee has like a hook and like live and let die or, and stuff like that. Or I feel like some of the best ones have real physical differences or something that really set them aside. You know, some of the boring ones like, I don't know, like like in tomorrow never dies the guy just has like bleached hair it's not very it's not right. like uh you know what that's not a thing that was that was pretty clearly the villains of the 2000s yeah like that's People not a thing bleached hair. i don't know one guy had like diamonds like encrusted in his face but yes mm-hmm. yeah um but anyway for not getting much to work with del toro does a lot with i have to say yeah i totally agree with that chad do you like wayne newton <laughs> he's fine it's professor joe that's that's fine. It, it's a fun cameo type role. So you know what? It, he wrote in to the studio. He wrote in to the Broccoli's and said, hey, put me in this. They did. I. It's fun. We just did Blazing Saddles and we had uh, Bassie's band in there. That, whatever. If you're a fan of the series and you want to get in, fine. I love it. I love it. Do, do, is this too silly for you, Bill? No, I thought the way they used him was perfectly because the the front they're doing is him being an evangelist and communicating through the television, obviously in front of everyone and no one's catching on to it. I'm like, that's brilliant. I thought he was used perfectly. They didn't put too much of him into it. Um, And just, yeah, the way they wrote the character uh, fit him to a T. I love how when they're evacuating their reconstructed Aztec kind of base, like they're in a golf cart, I guess. Uh, was it a golf cart, right? Yeah, it was a golf right. cart. Yeah, that doesn't seem like a. This is talking about lack of style. Like, how is that not a motorcycle? Like, I mean, right. Like, they're just going by in an '80s golf cart, you know. I mean, so anyway, they're going into a golf cart and uh, they snatch the bag of money from. Like, Carol snatches the bag of money that she had given him earlier as the setup and gets it back, and he just goes, "Bless your heart." Like, yeah. I just. It's like, uh, this is the kind of thing that I really do want to happen in the Craig movies. And we get so very little of it. And it's it's not really coming from Dalton. It's coming from around him. So a little bit of Wayne Newton goes a long way, both in music and in movies. But I mean, this, like, I think Chad's right. Like, I mean, it's the right amount to spice this thing up. So yeah. um, John Rice Davies was offered the role of Pushkin, but he declined the offer and did Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade instead, which I like this movie, but that's a good choice. So. Right. 
you yeah, know, yeah. to reprise it. And to your credit, Russell, Robert Davies standing up for your girl. He stood up for Talissa Soto. He said he helped get her cast. He said he picked her because it was someone he would kill for. So yeah, he, she's, she has to seem vulnerable. And yeah. she does the femme fatale well, I think, personally. Like, she's mysterious. I, I don't know. You have to have not only look the part, but there's a sense of vulnerability that she conveys that I do like. But anyway... Let's talk about Felix Leiter, the man who changes faces every time. I don't know why Bond struggles with these things of sometimes they even reuse the same actor in different roles from movie to movie. But 16 years later, 16 years later from from the early Roger Moore era, we have David Hedison coming back to play Felix Leiter. He is my favorite Felix Leiter. I don't know about you, Bill Bant, but does it make you happy to see David Hedison come back? It did especially when they tried to wheel out John Terry for the living daylights. And you could tell him and Dalton had no chemistry whatsoever. So if they had tried to bring him back for this one, I don't think Bond would have cared that Felix got eaten by a shark. So it was good to bring Hedison back. I mean, the obvious thing is just the age difference between the two of them and I mean, we'll get into it later with recast. He's the person I probably would have recast, but I did like that they brought him back for this because there was that familiar face that you saw. And we hadn't seen Felix really for a long time outside of very briefly in the living daylights. He's obviously older, but they dye his hair. They do all the tricks you can do. They tanned him up more than reasonable. I mean, like they did everything they could do for the 1980s to young him up as best as they could. They could probably do a better job of that now, but I just like him. I liked him as Felix before, so it makes me happy to see him. It's kind of like the thing where people will say, like, Roger Moore played Bond too long. It's like, maybe, but I like Roger Moore, and I'm willing to put up with that to some degree. Correct. I'm going to let that go here. Yes, uh, the woman who's playing Della is visibly, Priscilla Barnes is visibly a lot younger than he is. It, it, it feels weird. It also feels weird that she's like really handsy with James. Like, oh, yeah, fair, like, super I mean, like, handsy it's with like, James. It's like, it's like, wait a minute. You know you're marrying Felix, right? Felix. Remember that, right? Yeah. Are you just marrying Felix so you can get closer to Bond? Is that what's going on? I don't yeah, know. Yeah, like she she gave him a kiss and said, like, you know, I get to kiss the best man. But then she did it a second time. Oh, yeah. Every time she's in the room with her, her hands are all over. She's making up for Money Penny, who has next to no role in this movie. That is not a normal, like, uh, hey, this is my good friend's uh, female companion way to do things. So, I mean, uh, Lighter's just, like, busy, like, working on his own. You know, she's all over James. So, you're right. There was some of that that might have been, like, uh, we get it. James Bond is irresistible to women. But maybe we dial it back just a little bit down with his friend's lady. (laughs) So, how fun is the start of this movie, though? The cold opening, Bill. We we start in a wedding. Oh, yeah. Definitely something different. And... The fact that the cold opening actually ties into the rest of the movie, because you have a lot of cold openings that don't tie into the movie itself, but this one directly does. It really gets uh, the story started right from the get-go, and we meet Sanchez, who is crossing into international waters for the first time, and because Lupi has strayed and found herself a new boyfriend, and no, 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 and uh, because of this, she's almost set sanchez up and now felix and the dea are are chasing him down and with the help of bond they're able to uh, kidnap him and hopefully incarcerate him for all of his things so you think for a brief second hey warren trucks is winning but sanchez throws out the uh two million dollar uh bribe and uh yeah 
who contributed two million dollars. Killifer lays it on so thick with the like, "You make me sick." Oh yeah. And, <laughs> and then later on, he's like, "Well, two million dollars." Right. <laughs> yeah, like, exactly. We um, do a lot of $2 million back in 89, so. I feel like that should have just been pre-orchestrated and not mentioned, like, at the table. Like, I didn't need the interrogation bribery. Like, I just need the whole, like, I had this guy in my pocket the whole time. But then we get the the wonderful line of, what a waste. Of oh, money. that was good. Oh, that yeah. was good. They, they should have done that anyway. I mean, that that's what I mean. Like, that's iconic Dalton. Like, that's brutal. Like, the whole, like, the guy standing there, like, help me. Like, I mean, you know, the Batman thing to do is to pick up your villain and send him to jail. But nope, he just throws a whole case full of money. It makes him lose his grip and fall into a shark tank and get eaten. I mean, that's your hero. That's this, you know, that's Timothy Dalton Bond for you. Oh, yeah. If I was shark in that scene, I'd be finding something to start scooping that money up. I'm like, hey, this is dirty money. I'll, I'll take it. Bond doesn't care. He's not going to say anything. He has a bloodthirst. Yep. <laughs> so longtime Bond producer Albert Broccoli, he's unfortunately sick during the production of this movie. And with the Mexico atmosphere, it affected his lungs and breathing. And he's left on location, accompanied by his wife, Dana, and, and daughter, Barbara, who she later takes over. He was unable to return. And this is the last Bond movie where he was on the set. So Albert Broccoli is so responsible for the direction and the changes and the shifts in course throughout all of Bond. I'd say single-handedly he's the one who has ensured it to last through all these decades and stuff like that. So this is where we say goodbye to Albert Broccoli too. This is Dalton's last movie, but it's Broccoli's last movie. And that's sad. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh yeah. Just a thank goodness for him that he was able to have a vision with this. And even when he had the rocky relationship with Saltzman and they split up and he just kept steering forward and was lucky enough to make the right choices of, bringing in a new actor to bring Bond. And at that point, you know, it's your fourth time mm-hmm. and it's still working. So um, kudos to him that he was just able to make this work. This is all done, by the way. I, I think the story's good. This is done in the middle of a writer's strike as well. So Richard Maybaum was not able to continue working on the screenplay, longtime member of the crew. So he kind of co-ghost wrote and co-wrote the script with Michael G. Wilson. Michael G. Wilson being a bigger name going forward for the series for sure. It's just interesting. And as I mentioned before, this wasn't supposed to be Dalton's retirement. Like he didn't know this was going to be his last role. And he even had a chance to come back and do it again in 94 when Dalton announced that, you know, his retirement from the role. Broccoli came back to him and said, you know, do you want to do it again? And Dalton was going to star in another Bond movie. And unfortunately, he they needed him for more than one. He wanted to do one more. And they wanted him to just... Bond was coming out of hibernation. It was a reboot. So they needed... A new era, as I was mentioning before. And so he didn't want to do that. And so unfortunately, the Dalton run ends a little too soon. Yeah. And it's not, it wasn't the first time that, you know, Albert had chased Dalton because that was Albert's original choice before more. Dalton said, yeah, you know what? I'm just too young. I'm not ready for this. And then, you know, we got, got the more era for that. So, uh, and in a very similar story, Rosnan almost got Dalton's era from yep. the 80s and so there almost was no timothy dalton you almost went right from more to pierce brosnan he was on remington steel and he was seemingly out of his out of his done with his show and he was going they even shot publicity photos of him holding the walter ppk in this tux and then with the buzz and the enthusiasm for him the remington steel picked up the show and his contract and so he had to do that and that conflicted with his bond filming schedule and he couldn't do it 
And I saw an interview with Pierce and he said, I sat down on the ground. I, I hung up the phone and I cried. <laughs> like no. I, I no, wanted yeah. to do, I wanted to do this so bad and I couldn't, I had to finish the TV show. And so Timothy, as you mentioned before, in a similar boat would have gotten it as a much younger man. And then ironically, lightning struck twice for Timothy and it did for Pierce. So in, in that same vein, they got a chance to come back and he still got to do it. And he said, when he got the phone call to, do you still want to be bond? I mean, he just, he's like, I left through the ceiling. I was so excited. Yeah. It's so fun to see when you see Timothy talk about his bond tenure, he's very, you know, Timothy's a very cool. Like I'm an actor. Like, you know, I mean, I, I'm, I don't consider myself just James Bond, but one of the things that's most endearing about watching Pierce Brosnan talk is how, how enthusiastic, like, you know, he is to play the role. And so that story is, it's, it, it's interesting to watch each person's take on the role as they've, as they've done it afterwards. It's a complete contrast to, like, you know, Connery was very bitter and angry by the time that he was done. So oh, yeah. Pierce, on the other hand, when when they called him up and said, but after die another day, they're like, we're not going to go with another direction. He's just like, again, he's like, I hung up the phone. I laid down on my floor and I cried. <laughs> yeah, I, I think the fact that Pierce didn't even get that role, I think it did hurt the Timothy Dalton because so many people were sold on the fact that Pierce Brosnan was going to become Bond. And then the fact last minute it didn't happen. Everyone was upset. They were all just like, all right, well, when are you going to bring Pierce in? And I, I think that in a way, outside of the change of the direction of what Dalton was trying to do as Bond, a lot, in the back of a lot of people's minds, too, is like this should have been Pierce Bronson in, this, in these movies. So I, I do, think do you think that was still hanging over his head at this point, though, at movie number two? When your first one isn't well received, probably. Yeah, I like that first movie. I, I would have. I do, too. I'm fine yeah. with The Living Daylights. I mm-hmm. like the living daylights. Yeah. I think both of us are solid. Not yeah. great, not bad, just solid. Yeah, I was going to say, if you look at, okay, he only got two movies, but if you look at each Bond's best and worst, his worst is not bad. No. Right. No, you Roger know? Moore has some absolute stinkers. Yeah, he does. I mean, again, I just got done saying Pierce Brosnan. I mean, Die Another Day is a little bit rough. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, Quantum of Solace. It's not my favorite. I mean, that's for sure. That's that's when you have to watch multiple times to me. You have to appreciate it. But yeah, I think what happened with Pierce is he he started off great with Goldeneye. And I just think each one got worse. I I don't think that was his fault. I think that was the writer's fault. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this movie was going to be called License Revoked, but people in the United States get confused, and that and it sounds like you have too many DUIs. So they uh, they changed that to be License to Kill, and again, spelled with a C as opposed to an S. Oh, sorry, um, an S, so British spelling, because so, it's British. They actually did get to use that title, though, because um, after Ian Fleming stopped writing, they had John Gardner write the books, and one of the first books by John Gardner for the James Bond series is actually called License Revoked. So they did get to use it at some point. I have diplomatic immunity. It's been revoked. Yep. <laughs> I do not like this M character nearly as much as Robert Brown does not do it for me very much in this era. And it's hard to let go of Bernard Lee. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's hard to let go of Bernard Lee. All the others are great. I mean, we have Ralph Fiennes, we have Judy Dench. Like he's surrounded by greatness. So yeah, Bernard Lee is—he's up there. He is fantastic. Yeah, Robert Brown does not do it for me in this one. I can yeah. put up with Caroline Bliss taking over as Miss Moneypenny, but Bernard Lee—you have to have like there's this chemistry that you have to have between Bond and M, and it's at about its worst for me here. <laughs> yeah, I agree with that too. He's. 
you couldn't pick him out of a lineup. Yeah. Now talking about people who return, Chad, John Glenn, he has directed for your eyes only octopusy view to a kill living daylights license to kill. He's very much Mr. Bond director at this point. It's very erratic. It goes serious, less gadgetry. Then it's a fantastic with octopusy. Then it goes like Mr. Fantastic with a view to a kill. Then it goes back to serious again with living daylights and to really serious and more violent that we've been talking about in license to kill. What do you make of John Glenn as a director during this whole run? I hope that I, I like for your eyes only. Let me just put that out there. But then it starts getting sketchy. Octopussy is arguably the worst movie in the entire Bond franchise. It's good call. <laughs> I'm a Roger Moore fan, so that hurts me. I I feel like this one's mo- more coherent than especially Octopussy, even A View to a Kill. A View to a Kill, you know, I was I was very hard on. We're throwing... It has a hard. It has a soft place in my heart. I, I do love it. I mean, I know I, it is panned, and people say it's yes. one of the worst ones, but I love it. We're keeping <laughs> dynamite in a refrigerator on a blimp. Like, there's. I just, have no problem with that. I have, <laughs> I have multiple problems there. We could break it down. You can listen to our episode of me whine about that. But yeah, this one seems to me this is his best work. I feel like it's his most focused. Okay. That's interesting. Uh, so, Bill, how do you feel like this stacks up in the John Glenn library? Um, yeah, God, uh, I feel like Chad just saw my notes and just read them off. I'm with you. I think Octopussy is probably one of the worst ones in the franchise. I'm with you, Russell, on A View to a Kill. It's one I watch a ton. It's not, yeah, I know people kill it all the time, but to me it's enjoyable. It's not great. But then he turns things around with being more serious with the living daylights and the license to kill and I think he does the action scenes very well, even just scenes with the with the dialogue exposition. But yeah, I I think with this one, it just the cinematography on License to Kill just seems different than the other four, which is just kind of jarring to me. Overall, I, I would say Glenn is pr- pretty solid. It's interesting that the style's really not coming from the director. Later in the Craig era, you get Sam Mendes, you get a different movie. You know, you you get the director to get you a style. When they when they pick their directors now, at this point, Covey Broccoli is just saying like, "This is the movie I want." John Glenn, make it happen. And it's seemingly John Glenn is not the. This is a strong producer with a director who's seemingly executing what's being handed to him. I think that's why this doesn't at all feel like it does not for five movies being directed by the same director or <laughs> two different main actors. There, it does not. <laughs> there's an amazing amount of like the pendulum is swinging back and forth like crazy in this tenure. And it's really weird that they all come from the same director. Very strange. Right. Yeah. He doesn't have a signature style, but he just keeps everything moving like it's supposed to. And, you know, audience enjoyed it. So, and we did cover a view to a kill, by the way. So that's out there. Episode 104 as well. So you can hear me being very forgiving with a movie that is widely bashed. So Isthmus is a fictional place. Do you like the, a big part of Bond is the jet set locations. Chad, do you like the places we're going here, this tropical settings? I think to go back to the point we were trying to make earlier, a lot of the shots for directors, whenever we're going to these locations, whether we're going to the Alps or we're going to Japan, like we get these sweeping shots of the scenery we get they're in love with where they are. I don't really feel like that's the case here. I really do feel like Isthmus was a set piece. It didn't feel really that we were 
in this great location in South America. They just didn't spend much time dedicated to the beauty that can be around him. It just it felt like set pieces to me. Interesting. Interesting. Bill, what about you? Is- I, I think I agree with Chad on that because when you start on the keys, you get these beautiful area shots of the area. And you kind of get a sense of what the keys is about. They go to the Hemingway house and all that. But yeah, once they get to Isthmus, everything seems a lot more enclosed and locked up. The only time you really get a sense of the beauty of it is when we're at Sanchez's home Mm -hmm. and Bond sneaks off with Lupe, but you never really get a feel of what Isthmus is. So yeah, I think I would agree with that too. And then really the other, you know, you have the big truck scene at the end, but that's dirt roads that could be anywhere. You no right. idea that doesn't, it's not a signature. You know, you don't, you don't have a, a landmark somewhere in the background that says, Oh, this is where this is happening. It could, you know, it could happen in your backyard. So I'm, un- yeah. I'm unclear if they politically could do it, but I mean, is it better off to just go ahead and say we're in Panama or Colombia and just commit to it? Or maybe they couldn't. Yeah. I don't know. It was filmed in Mexico city. And I, I do think it's significant. It's the first one where no scenes were filmed in the UK. Like just, yeah. you're right. You're right. Just uh, show off, show off your location. That's become a big thing. Think of the carnival scene in Spectre. Oh yeah. I mean, that's amazing. Beautiful. They did a much better job when they went to Brazil and Moonraker. Yes. Getting you into Brazil, which we covered last year, which is why it's just fresh on my mind. But you know, it was great to see the parade. The, the they they got on the gondola. They went up the hill, and like you got to really good sense of the varieties of the city, the the countryside, and short of handing you a, a plate of authentic food, you know, like they 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 make you appreciate the place. And I guess I didn't realize it. I was so taken aback by the furniture selections and the style of selections. The eighties, the late eighties, for me as an architect, is about the bottom for where art product design and architecture is it's it's a rough era for these things and so they go to traditional architecture which is probably forgiving and a good thing at this point but the furniture and the decor and everything in in this isthmus world where robert davis character sanchez hangs out is weird the fish the fish sculpture is unnerving when he wakes up these weird gold-plated chairs that have like seashell backs on them like these strange bar stools that nobody would actually sit on that are like made out of plexiglass. I mean, you've got like these rocks that are cast into like blue concrete on the pool. Like it's kind of like, I mean, everything's like white cloudy looking kind of furniture and it's just really trippy and I don't get luxury. Like when you go visit Dr. No's base, you're like, this is amazing. I didn't know this could exist. This is so cool. Like it's an underwater base or there's a volcano layer. And, you know, and um, in Connery's era, the style that I was getting at before or Man with a Golden Gun. I mean, there's some moments where things will be kitschy in 70s and within it. But I mean, where they are located is just so amazing. This is the style that I think we were talking about before. Dalton doesn't look like Bond so often in this. He's walking around very casual, windbreakers, khakis, things like that. I don't think I want my Bond to look like this. I don't think I don't think I want them inhabiting these kind of spaces. So this is what I meant by like these things don't feel bond. And part of what I tune in for is that enjoyment to globe trot. So we do get like that Aztec base, and that's my favorite part. 
of this whole thing. Like, you know, like they've reconstructed yeah. these ancient ruins It lifts up and a helicopter can land in it. So, I mean, there is some of that. But yeah, even when you talk about the Aztec set, when I think about the movie, I don't, I don't go to that set. Like, you know, if you only live twice. You, you think of the volcano layer right away. But yeah, when you think about License to Kill, yeah, you really don't think about the settings as much as you would. I, I mean, I do with the keys because I used to live down there. But outside of that, there's yeah, there's, there's no stand, standing out with locations. I'm pretty happy with the locations in Florida as well, by the way. Like Felix is American. That's okay. Like I felt like we were in a place. So you guys nailed it. I didn't really think I had my finger on it. I just said, I chalked it up to saying like, this is not a time for style. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but um, you know what? I think that that is there. I think the wardrobe is partially to blame for for style. I mean, uh, what, Bill, you are clearly more of a lover of the '80s decade than than I am here. But do the clothes and stuff like that uh, are they getting in the way of your enjoyment here? Like, does it like I don't know. This doesn't feel like Bond. It is kind of interesting, like you said. You don't see Timothy Dalton running around a lot in the tux, and then even the beginning opening scene. He's in a gray tux and you're like, wow, I've never seen Bond in gray before with a top hat. So that's kind of interesting. I don't, I think just because I was around it, I didn't really notice it. So, you know, if I go back and watch uh, Sean Connery and watch how they dress, maybe it would stand out to me, but because I was part of that decade, I'm just like, eh, that's just the way things were. Then. It's not as jarring to me. Yeah. We'd seen Roger Moore in a windbreaker too. So Chad, what about you? Do you like the look of what people are wearing here? That's always a big part of Bond. Well, you mentioned the Windbreaker, and we'd seen Roger Moore in it. So for me, me that's a continuation. Carrie Lowell's dress is gorgeous. That blue dress that she has on is fantastic. I think my issue was more with Lupe's hairstyle. I, I felt they aged her up that's when she said... not bad 80s hair, is it? I don't think that's bad 80s hair. It, it was weird for me. It made a 22-year-old woman look like she was... Uh, close to 30. Not that that's old for a woman, but what they were going for here was almost the BB character of this, this younger oh, girl. That's harsh. Okay. Maybe BB's too young. We, we have that issue with Roger Moore, but I, I thought they just aged up to Lisa Soto way too much. That was the only thing that really stood out to me is bad wardrobe. Yeah. We've got bond and with tails on his suit at one point, but I, I was fine with it. I did like the spaghetti strap dress that Carrie Lowell had, but I did not like the jacket that she came up with these gigantic, like it's a black jacket, like with giant buttons and like giant white lapels. Like, oh, that was fine. I, I, felt, I felt like the wind was going to blow and she was going to blow away like a sailboat. <laughs> um, she did have a wig. I didn't realize. I, I thought she just cut her hair for this. It's a good wig. I, I It's convincing. I, I'm not aware that I'm watching a wig. So. Yeah, same here. I didn't. Special effects here. So... We got a lot of explosions going on. We got a truck. We got a truck chase scene. We do stunts for real here in this point, and this makes me very happy. We got a guy actually climbing on a hel- on a pontoon airplane and hanging on and flying up with it. Bill, talk about all the wonderful things that the action. Why we are love these Bond movies so much. The real action. So you have three major action set pieces in this movie. So you have the opening when you have the helicopter chasing down a single engine plane and bond having go down and basically catch it like a fish and use the hook system on that. So that's some crazy aerial stunts right there. 
So you have your air one, and then your second one is your C one, which you just kind of mentioned when Bond is intercepting a shipment of cocaine, and he ends up shooting a spear gun into a back of a seaplane and skiing behind it, and then climbing onto the plane and taking off. Pure awesome. Yes, it is. And then your third is a chase scene with giant tanker trucks. Tanker trucks doing things you've never seen before on screen. Shifting to the side. Just all these crazy custom built. I think they built like 15 of them maybe. To do these crazy stunts and avoid uh, Stinger missiles and getting shot up with Uzis. It's a pretty crazy chasing considering tankers really can't go that fast but uh the things they made them do in that closing were pretty spectacular yeah i don't think of the trek trailer truck as being a very exciting thing for for action movies but they did you know carrying the gasoline lighting it on fire catching it up i mean rolling one downhill and bashing it into the other they really did a great job of using these kenworth trucks yeah yeah I- feel like that's the most criticized portion of this movie because they do decide to do that 45 degree angle with the truck i'm fine with it I, we just came off the roger moore era if you want to keep a couple little silly things as long as you don't throw in a slide whistle i'm fine with it i'm okay and, with the pigeon double take but not a slide whistle. no 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 pigeon double takes either the the wheelie gets some flack but I, the wheelie through flames is an awesome shot it may come up later. Uh-huh. <laughs> I had to make three special trucks to do each one of these specific stunts. So it's uh, it's really cool to see what they were able to do. They, they pushed the vehicle to its absolute limits and beyond. And that's the fantastic nature of what I want from Bond. I water ski and I was just in awe of him water skiing on his bare feet, falling down and having the strength to get back up. Just that entire stunt sequence that Bill was talking about, that second stunt sequence. It's incredible. It's not really a stunt, but I love the set work for the submarine. Like when they when they go up and infiltrate Crest's boat with the submarine. I love that. It's such a tense moment when they go in there too. The underwater stuff is always fun for me. It, it harkens back to Thunderball a little bit. And I was going to say, that was too much of a rehash of Connery's era. That's one of my least favorite parts of Thunderball. Oh, well. I'm not an underwater guy. No. Not in Legend of Zelda, not in James Bond. Water Temple, I hear there. Yeah. And then you mentioned this before, the cars aren't doing it for you, Chad. What about you, Bill? Rolls-Royce Shadow, Rolls-Royce Silver Cloud 2, Lincoln Continental Mark Mark 7? Yeah, there wasn't really anything that stood out. You don't have the memorable car that you would in some of your other Bonds. So, yeah, I would say if you're ranking this on cars, yeah, this is at the bottom of the pack. Yeah, well, I think there's one... He gets a pretty rough one when he's abroad with Sheriff J.W. Pepper. Uh, and uh, yeah. what, what was that crappy car that he uh, oh, more right. more got? It wasn't good either. Yeah. But it, 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 it's at the bottom. That's fair. Yeah. Initially, Vic Flick, who had played lead guitar in Monty Norman's original 007 theme, Eric Clapton was asked to write and perform the theme song for License to Kill, and they produced a theme to match Dalton's gritty performance, but the producers turned it down. I'm a Clapton guy here, so... This makes me pretty sad. Bill, are you okay with the Gladys Knight uh, theme song that we do get? Or I kind of want that Clapton song back. I mean, yeah, you would love to have Clapton do a song for the series. But I'm actually okay with both the main 
Bond songs in this, License to Kill and If You Ask Me To by Patti LaBelle. I joked uh, with Jason with the Patti LaBelle. Is, I love that song so much. I was like, oh, when I get married, I want to use that song. And then, of course, Sleon Dion covered it and totally destroyed it for me. So I was like, yeah, that's <laughs> not going to happen now. So I would say, yeah, License to Kill is middle of the road. Um, I do like If You Ask Me To a little bit better. And of course, you have Michael Kamen uh, doing the score um, after John Barry had been doing it for years. And it's okay. I just, you just hear a lot of his other works in it. And, you know, he did The Lethal Weapon and Die Hard. So you hear a lot of that into this, bleeding into this. So, eh, on Michael Kamen's music on this also. Yeah, I think we've come a long way from the 70s, like Rita Coolidge, Sheena Easton era. This is this. I just don't feel like we're watching Bond movie like music for those. Chad, what about you? Do you like, you know, they're hearkening back with some of those instrumental elements to the earlier stuff here? Yeah, I mean, Gladys Knight's theme is based off of Goldfinger. It's an homage to Goldfinger. And I pick up on that a little bit. I'm with Bill. It's it's probably middle of the pack. I don't hate it. But it did give her her first top 10 British hit, so that that was a big one. And you know what? I will give it this. This has the most unique Bond theme in the entire series, and that's for the tanker scene. When they are shooting rounds into the trucks, we start getting the Bond theme. You get the spray of the Uzi, the da-da-da-da-da-da, and that's just cool. You just get the little hints of it, but... Kudos to them for making that happen. Absolutely. John John Barry was originally going to score this. Uh, long time. He's done many of the movies beforehand. Uh, unfortunately, he, he uh, has a ruptured esophagus in 1988 and was considered unsafe to fly and leave his home in New York to come do this. So we get Michael Kamen, who's known for scoring many action films, including Lethal Weapon and Die Hard. We'd mentioned these things earlier. So these are things that are happening in the action zeitgeist. Do you feel like, well, I think they mentioned that this was the closest thing to John Barry. Do you, do you notice that or do you just take it in stride as part of the evolution of Bond or do you feel like, hmm, I miss my John Barry here? I miss my John Barry. I wish he could have done this one too. I mean, I like Michael Kamen. I like the other stuff he's done, but it just doesn't. I mean, I even own the soundtrack, but it's more for the other stuff and not necessarily for Michael Kamen. I agree. I kind of agree with that as well. So can't help it when your esophagus ruptures. So it's a good reason, but can't say I'm not disappointed. Guys, do you want to hand out some awards? Absolutely. Yeah, let's do it. MVP of License to Kill, Bill. Oh, I got to go with Q. Just because I've always been a Q fan from the beginning. And the fact that he has a a bigger role. And I just watch him like, oh, if I could just done this 15 years earlier, we're maybe kind of seeing a little bit more out of him. But he's just so lovable and likable and... As much as you have all that banter between him and Bond throughout all the movies, the fact that they actually kind of get to work together and even sleep in the same room together, I just it just makes it memorable for me. That's a great scene. Yeah, it is. It is. Chad, MVP. I have to go with Timothy Dalton. I I don't think I appreciated how much he laid the groundwork for Daniel Craig until revisiting this movie. So I I enjoy this version of Bond. I think the movies have aged really well, and that's due in large part to how he portrayed this character. Absolutely. I'm going to go with Timothy Dalton as well. His run was too short, 
and I think he's at his best here. His hair's not at its best, but um, it's it's blowing around all over the place and so sloppy. He doesn't he doesn't seem like he's got that. He doesn't. They don't put any of this on him. That's on the wardrobe department. But his performance is good. So he does that bloodthirst really well. He's a good intense Bond. Best supporting actor. We got a lot of good memorable characters in this one. We've talked about so many of them. Bill, who's your favorite best supporting here? Can I pick Robert Davi for this? Is yeah, that okay? yeah. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, yeah. I would say uh, Robert Davi just because he's a different kind of Bond villain, um, as I mentioned multiple times. Just the way he portrayed that character, something new to the Bond universe. Someone even new to you know the Bond. Bond wasn't used to having to track down drug kingpins, and the fact that Sanchez sees kind of understands what bond is doing also once at, at the end i think uh there's a little respect there too that i kind of like yeah i'm two for two here i i just think he's so smooth he's a ruthless cold-blooded killer but he's so smooth about it that I, i'm just drawn to him and his scenes it's a great choice it's a great choice and i'm gonna echo robert davi as well i've been talking about what a great villain he is this movie is this movie is so much on his shoulders to make this work. He's so good. I thought it was cool. The one story that said uh, when he was working to help people audition that he actually stood in for the role of Bond and he was good at that too. He actually played the Bond part well. I kind of wish I could have seen that. Not that I want him to do it, but man, he's a good bad guy. Uh, good actor here. I like Robert Downey. DVD extra. Yeah, yeah. I need that DVD extra. Thank you. Hidden Gem. Uh, so for me, yeah, so I'm going like Deep, deep. So I'm going with uh, Grand L. Bush, who played Hawkins, who was one of the DEA agents, one half of Johnson & Johnson from Die Hard. If you watch the movie, initially, and when Sanchez makes that $2 million bribe, and they show a shot of Bush, and he makes that fake, you, you think he's the one that's going to go rogue and take take the money. And I just wish he had a bigger role in the movie to be honest he's maybe somehow partnered with bond to take down sanchez also because of his loyalty to lighter and what happened but it's a very small role but i liked him in it i, I wish we had seen him in more stuff but uh yeah grandel bush is mine it's a fine choice yeah chad hidden jim i'm going with our second mortal Kombat alum carrie tagawa he plays kwang and He's just someone you pay attention to. He doesn't really have anything to do in this movie. He's, he's basically a board member. He's sitting in on on meetings about cocaine. But you know what? I'm picking him on merit. He is Shang Tsung, and that is awesome. That's excellent. Yeah. And my hidden gem is going to go to Wayne Newton. I just, I, it's just too much fun. <laughs> it's the right amount of too much. It's the right <laughs> and, amount of cheese. Yeah, it's the right amount of cheese for me. I need a little bit of that here. So, uh, shout out to Del Toro though. So nobody gave him one. So, oh um, yeah, absolutely. Recast. If someone had to recast somebody and put somebody else in their place, who's it going to be, Bill? So yeah, so this was a tough one because uh, we've mentioned this actor already, and Russell, you and I both agreed that we did like the fact that David Hedison was coming back as Felix Leiter. But I was like, all right, if I wanted someone to be in even both films that you know so i'm recasting for two films i'm recasting for living daylights and for this one who would i put so i was trying to find someone that was contemporary to timothy dalton kind of around the same age a good american actor so i came up with john spencer 
who, uh, if you remember the TV show West Wing, he was on. He was also in Presumed Innocent with Harrison Ford. He was kind of the investigator for his trial. And then I first saw him in L.A. Law, uh, which is a TV show that came out in the late 80s. Um, big fan of John Spencer. I think he could have pulled off that role in both of these movies. And it would have been a great continuation to have the same actor for both films. Nice. Absolutely. Uh, I think continuation with Felix Leiter is something they struggle with until Jeffrey Wright comes along. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Chad, how about you? I've picked on her a little bit, but Talissa Soto is just no! the weak point of this movie for me. I'm sorry, Russell. You be nice. You know what? I'm going, I will appease you in the attractive ladies because Selma Hayek is 23 years old when this movie is made. Cast Selma Hayek. Ah, I don't like it. Good call, like Jad. People are peeking too hard in Minnesota. So um, anyway, I, I struggle on this one. I'm going to go after the asymmetrical eyes and the mustache of uh, Crest is is not, I don't know. I don't like him as the second bad guy as well. The first half of the movie, he's the bad guy for the first half of the movie yeah. before we really get a lot of Robert Davi. And the fall off of talent is just too great. I'm saying go get Ray Liotta to do, I like it. To do all of Crest's parts. Do you give him a mustache? No, no, he doesn't have to have a mustache. I don't think Ray no. Liotta. I don't think Ray Liotta can pull off a mustache. But he's um, gonna have a good villain mustache. It's just Ray Liotta is a villain. All he has to do is show up and be like, <laughs> "Hi, I'm Ray Liotta. I'm a villain." So, and I, you know, I, this one doesn't really count. But off record, I, I, Judy Dench is alive. We can put her in for Robert Brown, right? One movie sooner. Sure. Yeah. So bring her in sooner. Uh, now, best shot. So cinematic moment here, Bill. Oh man, I was. Uh... Between two, I think I'm going to just go with the uh, skydiving in the beginning, in the opening moment, uh, just to show the keys and all that. Um, just the stunt work also. I thought that was kind of a, a nice shot of uh, yeah, us here in the United States. Very, very few Bond movies take place here, so I'm plugging away a little bit. Yeah. Chad, how about you? Best shot. Physics be darned, it is the 18-wheeler on doing a wheelie through fire. That is an awesome shot. That's an, that's a great one. Um, and mine's got to be, it, it, it might tie into a, a good quote later, but when Sanchez is like, you could have had everything. And Bond's like, don't you want to know why? And then he just flips open the lighter and sets it on Sanchez. The dialogue helps it. The escalated moment helps it. But boy, that delivers a climax. So that scene where like he like lights up Sanchez on fire and the like, you know, the gas truck chase scene. So good. What a, what a satisfying finish for a bad guy too. So best scene, Bill. Oh, it's gotta be the underwater onto the biplane scene because it starts off with Bond, Initially getting revenge on Sharky getting killed, spear gunning someone in the chest, then jumping over the boat, grabbing that guy's underwater equipment so he can breathe underwater. And then he's cutting up the cocaine and then some they get to him and they there's like three or four times you're just kind of like, how's Bond going to get it out of this? And, you know, he's going to. But that actually gives a little bit of doubt because, you know, he gets his hose cut. And now, you know, what's he going to do? And he just happens to see the plane above him, grabs a spear gun shoots into the pontoon and then just takes off. It's just 
it's just cool. There's just a lot of stuff going on in that short amount of time, and it's a lot of fun action. It is good. That's really good stuff. How about you, Chad? I'm right there with Bill again. That was my favorite shot, him going ham on the cocaine with the knife. I thought just, you were hot on the underwater scenes. He comes up out of the water. It's, it's okay. the divers with the spear guns part that I'm not really into. But everything that follows that is just pure bond. I love it. I may have tipped my hand with my best shot, but I mean, the whole best scene of the truck chase at the end is really there for me. I love it. I just, I like the, you know, riding on vehicles, switching vehicles, unhinging them, making them all blow up. I mean, I love his little accountant minion, you know, you know, getting shot. I mean, there's so much stuff going on here. I really love it. So I think they wanted Clapton because the theme of this movie is cocaine. Would be fitting. Yes. It would be fitting. So <laughs> be a bit too heavy handed. So, we were a little hard on it, but I want you to find your best wardrobe or makeup moment. Oh, please. Carrie Lowell in her Miss Kennedy outfit. Good yes. Lord. I, me and Timothy Dalton are making the same face at her when she shows up in that outfit. And then the fact when they get in the elevator, it's got the tearaway to reveal the gun. Hands the tearaway was the tearaway was great. Yes. Yes. That's one of the best outfits of all time. On There's almost nothing holding. Those are very thin strings that wrap around her neck there mm-hmm. to hold the dress up to. So uh, almost not there. So uh, Chad, how about you? Best wardrobe or makeup moment? I am going the complete opposite direction. Q's disguise when he's on the road with the broom. That oh, is my yes. favorite costume. The mustache and the hat. Yeah, yes. That's hilarious. That is the opposite direction as well. And I will go back right back the opposite direction. And I'm going to pick Lupe's red dress. Okay. Yeah. Very yep. nice. Change one thing. And only one thing. Bill. I would take out the Hong Kong Narcotics Bureau stuff plotline. I didn't think it's needed. Huh. It's true. You don't have ninjas fighting. No, no you don't need ninjas. Which is an improvement. Huh. I think that's a leftover from where they really wanted to go to China. I do want them to blast out the window with the plastic explosive and try to snipe him. So I don't want to lose that, but I think I can see where you're coming from. Most Otherwise, most of it's there. How else would Sanchez get a hold of them, though, and think that he's... It seems too integral to the plot. Maybe you'll you have to write your way out of it. But I believe you in that saying that the Hong Kong narcotics part doesn't have to be there. But um, yeah, it's an interesting thing. I hadn't thought about that before. Good point. It, it could have been, yeah, it could have been someone from Q, um, from MI6. Okay. Yeah, you'll have to do something in this, in this place, but that's fine. I, I hear you. Yeah. Chad, what about you? Change one thing. I am a simple man. I just want an 80s Jaguar, like an XJ6, something for Bond to drive that isn't a Lincoln Mark 7. So give him a really cool, sleek looking car. Okay. I would like one more action scene. I want a better boat chase. When they leave and Carrie Lowell blast a hole through the wall, I want some gunfire. Uh, you know, running out of gas and getting into a romantic scene is nice and all, but I'm not saying I need full out live and let die boat chase scene here. But <laughs> I mean, I could at least use a uh, the world is not enough boat chase scene to get us started with here. That's fair. Yeah, yeah, good oh. calls. I like them both. Best quote, Bill. Man, this was a tough one, but I went with Sanchez and it just demonstrates his character when he comes upon Lupe and his lover and he says to Lupe, what did he promise you? His heart? 
and then turns to Dario and says, give her his heart. And then you see Dario flip the switchblade and you're like, oh, that's kind of serious. Right. Yeah. How about you, Chad? He disagreed with something that ate him. Really? Okay. Yeah, that, that was a good one. Um, I'm going to go with uh, the technical answer should be loyalty is more important to me than money. But I cannot get over, bless your heart. <laughs> <laughs> if you tell me this movie, that just pops into my head right away. Immediately. So. That's fair. As we move forward, though, but before we close out the show, Bill, do you want to remind everybody where we can hear the All 80s Movies podcast? Yeah, so the All 80s Movies podcast is available wherever you stream your podcast. So we are everywhere. New episodes come out every Friday. All right. Thank goodness it is Friday. Mm-hmm. I admire your consistency. I'm wearing my Jason Voorhees TGIF shirt right now. <laughs> <laughs> so... On a five-star scale, half-star intervals, Bill, what do you give License to Kill? Four stars for me. Like I said earlier, I think both the Timothy Dalton movies are solid. I like that Timothy Dalton or James Bond in this movie goes rogue. So it's definitely a departure from the other films. And uh, great villain, great Bond girl, and uh, some really cool action scenes. Very true. I can't agree. I can't disagree with any of that. Chad, how about you? I'm going four stars as well. I enjoy the tone change. I think Dalton gets an unfair bad rap. I wish we had more of him. I'm with you. I'm I'm with you both. I'm right there with the four stars. And this is fun enough to have fun. It's tough enough to be tough. It responds to its times for the most part pretty well. Any of its shortcomings are just merely, this was a lower budget Bond movie for the time. Like both, most of them had more money. And might have been a little more stylish. And maybe some of your comments about the globetrotting could be done a little better. But I mean, I return to this one frequently. The rewatch value is really high for me. So I'm going to go with four with you guys too. Excellent. Chad, do you want to help me pick a movie for next time? I would love to. All right. Let's do something divine and heavenly. Interesting. All of these movies have heaven in the title. Hmm. Option one, Seventh Heaven from 1937. A Parisian sewer worker longs for a rise in status and a beautiful wife, and he rescues a girl from the police and lives with her in a barren flat on the seventh floor, and then marches away to war. Option two, all of this and heaven too, from 1940. A duchess's rational behavior towards her children's governess triggers tragic events that will change her family's lives forever. And option three, leave her to heaven from 1950. A writer falls in love with a young socialite and soon they're married, but her obsessive love for him threatens to be the undoing of them both as well as everyone around them. Oh, it's got to be leave her to heaven. I'm excited to cover this one. All right. All right. We've covered Vincent Price and Jean Tierney together before in Laura. We're going to do it this time and leave her to heaven. So, Bill, thank you so much. You're an awesome guest. I love your enthusiasm for Bond. It's great to have you on, man. Oh, no. Thank you so much for having me on. This was uh, great. I really enjoyed listening to your show and uh, hopefully uh, we'll keep doing the crossover again in the future. Absolutely. Love it. So thank you all the doors, ladies and nights, the Retro Movie Roundtable. We invite you to reach out to us. We want to hear from you. So subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Pandora, wherever you get your podcast. Those reviews and subscribes really help listeners find the show. Subscribe to our channel on YouTube. We appreciate your support. Give us a like on Facebook, on Instagram, and follow us on Twitter at movie underscore retro. Uh, Email us at retromovieroundtable at yahoo.com. 
And producing and providing this podcast is fun, but not free. So we invite you to support our show at our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash Metro Movie Roundtable. All contributions are much appreciated and will go towards making the show better for you, the listeners. As always, thank you for listening. Be good to each other and watch more movies. Chad? I don't accept your resignation, but I will accept a strong cup of tea. <laughs>